Bookworm Games, Episode 30, Magic Canterbury Tales. This is Wesley Shantz. As an epigraph for this episode, I like the innkeeper's text. Please rest. The dream you'll have here is a dream within a dream. Your heart knows things you aren't aware of. Do you want to sleep? Okay. If you walk outside, beware of the monsters. Welcome back. I just caught up on one conversation, slotted it in as episode 25 with Patrick, and I hope to find some time for one more with our friend Ryan this week, which will join the following trio of episodes to become number 29, and that brings us up to the final three or four episodes here in the Bookworm series on Earthbound. We pick up on the threshold of Magicant. All right, first some footnotes. In connection with last time's focus on musical and narrative structure. I should have mentioned the name Northrop Fry. I just started catching up on his books, only about a generation or two late. Starting with the seminal Anatomy of Criticism, I would definitely recommend that if you're looking for a challenge. As I read more and continue devising my own theoretical frameworks for understanding narrative and games, I'd be interested in hearing what you think, whether you read Fry or not. More specifically, you can see from the sheet music image that I found from starmen.net to go with the video for 28 that there's more than one way to notate the song. They use an initial rest, and you could also think of those first notes as like a pickup measure. It's got the sharps written out individually rather than being in a key of D or G major. They have dynamics marked out for the performer, and so on, which is all hopefully helpful to look at to make sense of the music, and so I commend that video to you as well. Now. On to Magicant. This place opened up within Ness's mind, perhaps pre-existing there and unlocked, or perhaps created by the Soundstone and the eight Your Sanctuary locations. Here's what the Star Master, who trained Pooh, is there to tell you. Ness, you've stood on the eight power spots of the Earth. From these you created Magicant, the realm of your mind. In Magicant, there's beauty, kindness, sorrow, and hatred. Of course, there's an evil and violent side of you. The Sea of Eden sits at the center of those feelings. It takes you to the truth about yourself. So this is Ness's unconscious talking to him through the guise of the Star Master? Or is it the intelligence of the Star Master communicating with him to help orient him? Is it an image Ness has of him? or his actual astral projection? This sort of question is endemic throughout Magic Hand where talking to people changes the color of the world, like a filter. It pulses with a surreal waltz rhythm, taking familiar notes and stretching or skewing them to give an aural funhouse effect. And with each footfall, Ness makes a cute, squeaky, hoppy sound effect. The colors and shapes are intense and strident, contributing to the childishness and oddity of the music and surroundings, and Ness himself is in his jammies. In the Japanese original, Mother 2, he's naked. According to Legends of Localization, this is a fairly common thing in Japanese role-playing games and other media, connoting purity. The name Magicant, apparently, is a combination of the English magic and the Japanese word for country. It appears in each of the Mother games, playing an important role connected with gathering the pieces of a melody, but here we'll continue to concentrate on Earthbound. What is this place? First, let's relate this to our previous discussion. Magicant is where Ness finds himself after 
that extended sequence of his memory or imagination of his house and overhearing the dialogue between his parents and seeing himself in the crib. It will be the scene for an inner journey delving into himself now that he has completed the eight stages of his journey to all the corners of the world. Until Ness completes this journey too, he is going to remain trapped within Magicant. Once he accomplishes whatever adventure awaits him here, Magicant will be no more, as inaccessible as Moonside, which in many respects it resembles, or Snowwood Boarding School. And although Ness is alone without Paula, Jeff, or Pooh, Magicant is inhabited by many other people. Some of the first characters you encounter there are Tracy and Ness's mom, who perform much the same function as, in what for lack of a better term we'll call, real life, the game outside of Magicant. Tracy holds onto or disperses items for you, and Mom offers your favorite food and restores you to full strength. Something is immediately a little off. Your mom asks if you're tired, and if you say yes, she offers the creepy choice of staying there to rest forever. Your dog is there too. He whines, saying how he used to live at your house before you were born, and how you used to be small and weak. And then you might ask, how can Tracy give you things here within Ness's mind, things which exist out there in the world? If we take that to be Ness just imagining a continuity between the two, and we're comfortable recognizing this not as the actual pencil eraser, say, but as his image of it, just as this is not his actual sister and mother and so on, but a kind of dream or idea he has of them very well, but then when Ness gives her things to store for him later, like the earth pendants you can buy at the shop in Magic Cant, the real Tracy will still actually have them once you wake up. And the things that you take and use here, like magic truffles, brain food lunches, bags of dragonite you might have been stocking up on, they will all actually be gone when you awake. And so will any money you spend, subtracted from whatever you earn. And of course, you can still call your dad on the phone from within Magicant to save the game. How can this be? I think we either just go with it and not worry about explaining it, which would be totally fine, or we are forced to see this subjective experience as, in fact, objectively efficient, having real, objectively verifiable effects. Whether this is magic, as the name implies, or psychic, as psi power has been a thing throughout the game, it has interesting ramifications for the reality of Ness's experience here, and by analogy, for us playing the game. What do we actually give to the game? Certainly, a few measurable things. The money to buy it, the electricity to operate it, control inputs, our time, our attention, our interest, and emotional involvement, and here it shades off into what gives us memories, ideas, meaning. And in this give and take with the game, it becomes a part of us. A part of that which we still call by the almost magical name, our psyche. It's an inner landscape, with its evil and violent side. And with it, its loaded name, Sea of Eden. How can we possibly confront and integrate such a place? Remember, before we go any further in Magic Hand, that all the sanctuary spot's visions conveyed in text upon recording the melody connected up to that moment that Ness sees in full before coming to Magicant. The small, cute puppy, the baby in a baseball cap, 
his mother's voice saying, Be a thoughtful, strong boy. A whiff of steak, a baby's bottle, his mother, when she was young, his father holding him, and the feeling he was being watched by himself as a baby. In the full vision, these elements are all present. And so, I think this is that overlap in time and space spoken of by the talking rock and alluded to by Talarama, when the fragments of that original memory or dream of complete happiness come together, when Ness is named, loved, when his potential is imagined, and his present being delighted in, and unbeknownst to his parents, in that moment of nascent consciousness, Ness has the feeling of watching himself, simultaneously infant and youth, he is witness and participant at once, and it is also the moment when Ness's psychic powers first manifest. How do these two things relate? The movement of the bottle at a distance, in the past, and the awareness of his own invisible presence watching in the future. It suggests that memory and awareness, freshly perceived information, and felt self-knowledge are the heart of psychic ability, in some paradoxical way overlapping outside of our normal experience of time, capable of affecting things outside ourselves and in ways our physics cannot explain. It suggests that the power of reason is ever-growing and yet serves and arises from the irrational, and it must not presume too much to control it. The nature of this world, of the vision, is as a dream. It presents as a drama, a kind of scene from a play, and from this magicant itself emerges to allow further gameplay. In magicant, we get a kind of microcosm of what the whole adventure has been, the dramatization of thoughtful strength. It begins to answer that question Ness has been asking himself, at least since Lumine Hall, what will happen next? Well, this, after completing the quest, the inner quest remains. And it's a question we'll come back to, again, after defeating Gigas. But we see the answer prefigured here in the return to that moment of critical importance around which the soundstone revolves the unfolding of Magicant, which follows. This is what prepares Ness for, and leads him to the deepest place he can go, the Sea of Eden. In this way, Magicant reprises those short, unreplayable parts of the game when you guide your new party members individually. Pooh in Dalam, Jeff in Winters, the missing chapter with Paula in Tucson and Happy Happy Village, and it is again, like Moonside, and like Threed with the Zombies, and like the Meteorite Night. But there's also this. As the player, we also were responsible for naming Ness and the others, just as his parents name him here. We also named his dog, his favorite food and thing, along with him and his friends. And recall that the default for that favorite thing is Rockin' which is how this vision takes place, with the crib rocking in the center. It's a small and probably tenuous wordplay, I guess, but there is something visual that is analogous, too, between the checkerboard pattern 
in the background of the file select screen and the new game dialogues, and the pattern making up the walls of the buildings in Magic Hand. Don't they look similar? When starting a new game or selecting a file, it's something like Ness's parents discussing his future, circumscribing it and knowing nothing of his destiny. How much had he known of his powers up until that first night the meteorite landed? Presumably nothing conscious, since the first sigh he learns is then life up. It's realized after gaining experience in battle. To give more life, to go out rockin', whether by telekinesis or spirit projection or in memory or imagination, is this anything other than the deepest desire of creative intuition, creatively portrayed by the game. As a last note here, I'll point out again that Ness's parents are invisible during the vision. They're left up to the player's imagination and perhaps to imaginative participation. May we all have such a true memory to recover or create in our lives to give us the power we somehow have to find to face the sea within and its demons. Here's Hamlet. We'll remember him from our first episode. Oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. That's an act two, scene two. And here's a good rejoinder that I just found in a book one of my neighbors gave me as a wedding present. I have heard that the great author Flannery O'Connor was once asked to put the meaning of one of her short stories in a nutshell. She responded tartly that if she could have put the meaning into a nutshell, she wouldn't have had to write the story. I've been thinking, I've been trying to put the cross of Jesus in a nutshell because I think it is an important exercise. Nevertheless, an exposition like this chapter of mine can't convey the all can't convey all the life-changing power of the narrative arc itself. The stories that always seem to move us most deeply are those in which someone faces irremediable loss or death in order to bring life to someone else. That's in Keller's The Reason for God, page 205. And I think that's fair. Hamlet's friends think his bad dream is ambition, just like what makes his country feel to him like a prison. To which he replies, A dream itself is but a shadow. Rosencrantz says, Truly, and I hold ambition of so airy and light a quality that it is but a shadow's shadow. Then Hamlet, Then are our beggars' bodies, and our monarchs and outstretched heroes the beggars' shadows. The same question as confronted us in Magicant is being bandied about here. What is real? What mere appearance? What is worth striving for? Dying and killing and procreating and living for? Talking about ultimate reality. And these questions beckon us on from the vision of complete happiness to face Ness's bad dream, his nightmare. So much for this dream within the dream, as the Magicant Hotelier says, 
that crucial scene corresponding to the eruption of the meteorite in its importance to the plot of the game. If I've belabored it to the detriment of talking much about the rest of Magicant and the Sea of Eden, if, like Gertrude to Polonius, you'd prefer more matter, less art, I'll try to make up for some of that now and make up some ground. But I would also recommend the popular YouTuber Angry Video Game Nerd, who's got an episode on Earthbound where he devotes a considerable time to Magicant and makes some interesting comments, including through the very way of making his comments. As O'Connor says, the form is integral to the meaning. What role ambition plays in making and responding to stories also, I think, is implied there. We aspire to perfection, and that laudable aspiration contains the seed of its own disaster. So, little by little, Ness makes his way past the snowmen, the clock which looks like a stop sign, the faint memories like little birds hopping, and the boogies of recently defeated bad guys he might still feel guilty about defeating, the line of characters there like the queue at the Chaos Theater box office, like bystanders at a parade, like an emblem for that chain of necessary conversations throughout the game. Fresh, one of them says to him, apparently a translation for something more like cheeky, a vestige of the nakedness, whom you can still catch the sight of in a screenshot in the player's guide at the bottom of page 111. And someone there makes the request that you take your time, knowing it won't last. And there's a little Easter egg put in by one of the translators who just had a daughter born and named her Nico. And he got a single day off in the race to finish the game for its American release. And thus he named this kid after her. And that was allowed to stay in the game. As were the crosses on the tops of the graves, which were either missed or just escaped due to time constraints. Along with the unbodlerized Christian symbols here, which multiply the more of your courage, manifested as flying man, that you lose in battle. The original nakedness of Ness, which he is supposed to revel in, and the, and the overall profusion of invitations to psychological analysis. In all these ways, this part of the game points ahead strongly to Xenogears a game which I hope to give a future series of discussions about within the next year or two. In Xenogears, the nakedness comes at the end of the game, but like Earthbound, it alludes to a regained paradise. In cutscenes throughout Xenogears, the cross necklace figures prominently, and one of the characters is named Id, to give just a few examples. So that's something I'm looking forward to. Back to Magicant. Besides that erroneous screenshot, the player's guide makes another mistake here, a much bigger false claim, reporting that the Krakens in the Sea of Eden drop Ness's ultimate weapon, the Gutsy Bat. In fact, it's dropped by 1 in 128 of the Bionic Krakens, near the very end of the game. So for anyone who actually tried to find the rare items, back before the widespread help of the internet, this must have been unimaginably frustrating. Just past the line of people, the shade of Everdread and 
of a younger version of Ness, the one looking back, the other ahead to him, dizzyingly. We find a candidate for the shadow self, pokey, enthroned on his couch between classical pillars. But he is not your enemy here. He says, Ness, you're so lucky. I envy you. I have no luck. But Ness, well, okay. Let's be friends forever, all right? Even in Magicant, Pokey talks his way around to avoid the whole truth. Or, Ness is not ready to accept his true nature and still believes they can become friends. This traitor is not at the center of the inferno as in Dante's conception, but well away from it. Beyond him is the house where your courage dwells, manifold and exuberant. One at a time they join you, but like your dog or dungeon man or a teddy bear, they aren't truly a part of your party, and inevitably, since you can't heal them, they fall in battle. If you return to get a new one, you'll see the fresh grave of the one before, and each grave says something a little different, if you have the heart to reveal them all. First, though, is Buzzbuzz's tombstone, with this commentary. He appeared earlier in the game and gave up the ghost before he achieved his goal. Which strikes me in the way it alliterates, and in the way it refers directly to the game as a game, and in the reminder that Buzzbuzz thinks he failed. He didn't accompany you any further than Pokey's house, whereas he presumably intended to change history with you. But he did, actually, I think, by giving you the soundstone and setting you on the path to fulfill the destiny foretold by the Apple of Enlightenment, whose messenger he is. He did, nevertheless, set the goal, wisdom, courage, friendship. The emphasis in Magic Cant, though, seems to be on the dark side of each of these, it begins gently, with twists to the love and friendship of familiar characters, and the absence of your three great friends here. You depart from your jealous mother, you pass by Pokey, the false friend you still hope wishes to befriend you. You come to the house of your courage, many and one, chicken or eagle-shaped, atop two legs, and carrying with them a jaunty tune. They prove themselves in falling, which seems a little overbold rather than strictly courageous, thinking in terms of Aristotelian virtues of the mean, or recalling Birknoth in the Battle of Malden. Beyond Buzzbuzz's tomb, the way to the Sea of Eden, infested with foes, promises the wisdom, and with it the power, so far hidden from yourself. The Sea of Eden is filled with ultimate intelligence. You can't go there unless you're truly ready. It's a place where you can touch the truth of the universe. Going there may bring sorrow. No more singing flowers here. The last friendly face you meet is Ness himself, as he looks in the present, clothed, giving himself the baseball cap he started with. Then come waves of monsters, some previously encountered and others never seen before. Loaded dice, which summon UFOs and fobbies, carefree bombs, molecules, the kiss of death, the electro swoosh, and finally, Kraken, swimming in the Sea of Eden. It's like being back at the start of the game since you're alone, 
or you will be once your courage beside you dies, and you forge ahead rather than going back for another. Your hits and misses count for much more with only Ness. Carrying the Franklin badge helps, but you've likely given it to one of the other characters to hold, unless you knew this was coming. You can rely on life up and the rolling HP meter to get you through. You can touch the magic butterflies which appear now and then, and bring some magic pudding for the final push. Once you pick up the magic ant bat and other items strewn along the path, blending in with the present box disguised enemies, the path curls in on itself and comes to a tentacular form at the cul-de-sac. Touching this warps you to the Sea of Eden proper. At last, Ness wades through a kind of inversion of the path so far, mental seawater hemmed in by jagged walls, shifting from green to blue to purple, like the unformed ingredients of the background animation to future battles. The music here is still more lightly ominous and humming to itself, like the instruments and electronica tuning up before an unwritten symphony. Here the krakens roam about the rings of nothingness, and the stalagmites crystallized fixed dreams stabbing up through the sea and its absence, which you can use to elude them, for the most part, conserving your strength for the boss. A familiar golden statue glitters, staged upon its pedestal. It says, I'm the evil part of your brain. You can't beat me because you are the one who forced me into being. Instead of being called Mani Mani, it is now called Ness's Nightmare. Though without the wings, the new name recalls the monster of Fantasia, the night on Bald Mountain, or Goya's etching of the sleep of reason. In form it is the golden idol, the cuckolded Oscar, the Minotaur in the Labyrinth. More to the point, with respect to the game medium, it fits into a rich tradition of fighting the hero's shadow self, epitomized by games like Zelda II, Link's Adventure, where Shadow or Dark Link is the final boss, and Ocarina of Time, where he's a mini-boss guarding the long shot. The fight against Dark Cecil midway through Final Fantasy II, four in Japan, to transform from a dark knight to a paladin class, a fight you win not by attacking your aggressive side through the magic mirror on Mount Ordeals, but simply by surviving long enough for the fight to end. Or an eco, a magnificent atmospheric love story of a cursed child with horns and an ethereal girl locked in a castle patrolled by shadows. Ness's nightmare attacks with your own favorite thing, to keep your HP tumbling down, and with the glorious light, which like Psy Flash can kill instantly. It periodically heals itself with Life Up Beta, and also puts up a powerful reflective shield, at which point you should switch from physical attacks to psychic ones, and hope that you have enough PP left to keep your health up as well. Bags of Dragonite don't hurt either. Turning yourself into a monster to defeat the monster you potentially and partially are. For a more general description of the psychological shadow, I'd recommend delving into the works of Jung, as popularized more recently by 
Peterson in his books and talks. For example, in the late work Man and His Symbols, which Jung put out in collaboration with others of his school and geared it towards a non-academic audience, he writes... Myths go back to the primitive storyteller and his dreams, to men moved by the stirring of their fantasies. These people were not very different from those whom later generations have called poets or philosophers. Primitive storytellers did not concern themselves with the origin of their fantasies. It was very much later that people began to wonder where a story originated. Yet, centuries ago, in what we now call ancient Greece, men's minds were advanced enough to surmise that the tales of the gods were nothing but archaic and exaggerated traditions of long-buried kings or chieftains. Men already took the view that the myth was too improbable to mean what it said. They therefore tried to reduce it to a generally understandable form. In more recent times, we have seen the same thing happen with dream symbolism. We became aware, in the years when psychology was in its infancy, that dreams had some importance. But just as the Greeks persuaded themselves that their myths were merely elaborations of rational or normal history, so some of the pioneers of psychology came to the conclusion that dreams did not mean what they appeared to mean. The images or symbols that they presented were dismissed as bizarre forms in which repressed contents of the psyche appeared to the conscious mind. It thus came to be taken for granted that a dream thing oh, meant something other than its obvious statement. I have already described my disagreement with this idea, a disagreement that led me to study the form as well as the content of dreams. Why should they mean something different from their contents? Is there anything in nature that is other than it is? The dream is a normal and natural phenomenon, and it does not mean something it is not. The Talmud even says, the dream is its own interpretation. The confusion arises because the dream's contents are symbolic and thus have more than one meaning. The symbols point in different directions from those we apprehend with the conscious mind, and therefore they relate to something either unconscious or at least not entirely conscious. To the scientific mind, such phenomena as symbolic ideas are a nuisance because they cannot be formulated in a way that is satisfactory to intellect and logic. They are by no means the only case of this kind in psychology. The trouble begins with the phenomenon of affect or emotion, which evades all the attempts of the psychologist to pin it down with a final definition. The cause of the difficulty is the same in both cases, the intervention of the unconscious. Skipping ahead a bit here. The cross in the Christian religion, for instance, is a meaningful symbol that expresses a multitude of aspects, ideas, and emotions. But a cross after a name on a list simply indicates that the individual is dead. Okay. Moving on a little further to get specifically to the shadow. Such cultural symbols nevertheless retain much of their original numinosity or spell. 
One is aware that they can evoke a deep emotional response in some individuals, and this psychic charge makes them function in much the same way as prejudices. They are a factor with which the psychologist must reckon. It is folly to dismiss them because in rational terms they seem to be absurd or irrelevant. They are important constituents of our mental makeup and vital forces in the building up of human society, and they cannot be eradicated without serious loss. Where they are repressed or neglected, their specific energy disappears into the unconscious with unaccountable consequences. The psychic energy that appears to have been lost in this way, in fact, serves to revive and intensify whatever is uppermost in the unconscious, tendencies, perhaps, that have hitherto had no chance to express themselves, or at least have not been allowed an uninhibited existence in our consciousness. Such tendencies form an ever-present and potentially destructive shadow to our conscious mind. Even tendencies that might in some circumstances be able to exert a beneficial influence are transformed into demons when they are repressed. This is why many well-meaning people are understandably afraid of the unconscious, and incidentally of psychology. So, that comes from Man and His Symbols, Jung's Contribution, the first essay. Um, the title of that one is Approaching the Unconscious. Uh, pretty interesting. But since I haven't read much more Jung than that, uh, however, I'll just hazard my own read of what's going on here. It looks like the dark side of Ness is closely connected with his own powerful psychic abilities in their fully leveled up forms. Just as the vision which gave birth to Magicant dealt with the very first manifestation of his psychic gifts. Mercifully, Ness's nightmare is also a liar, whereas the vision was true. Ness can beat it, whether because he did force it into being, or because it arose organically as a byproduct of his own growth in the course of gaining experience on his adventure. Either way, the ultimate form of the Mani Mani statue proves not to be monolithically Manichaean and evil, but just a part of Ness, over which he prevails. In this fight, and in its aftermath, he shows that even when he's by himself, he is not simply alone. Ness heard a familiar voice at the center of the Sea of Eden. Gigas's goal is to destroy you. Listen carefully. Everything in the universe could be destroyed at the hands of Gigas, but he and his followers are also in trouble. The Apple of Enlightenment has foretold that Gigas' attempt will fail. It is because of the existence of a boy named Ness. That's me! Listen, free your mind, and know what you must do. Your destiny has already been decided. You, I, where should we go? You know deep within the reaches of your mind. Sat? Saturn? Saturn Valley. Yes, go to the valley where the Mr. Saturn live. You'll get something new there. Soon, Magicant will be no more. We must be quick. Ness really heard his own voice, 
Go to Saturn Valley. Go to Saturn Valley now. The screen fades to black around Ness in the course of this text, and in it we finally hear Ness's voice, and he does too. Really. At the end of it, he turns around to face the player and begins to glow as the HP and PP meters scroll freely and the power of each of the eight your sanctuary spots flows into him, a kind of battle in reverse. Having reconnected to the earth, Ness is integrated within himself, and now, having overheard his own voice revealing his destiny, his latent psychic power is set free. Still structured in terms of those eight locations, but correlated now to a massive level up, an increase in all statistical domains. Whereas his shadow figures, Pokey and the Mani Mani statue, his nightmare, appeared flanked by horns and columns, static and menacing, Ness is granted teleport beta, the power to move anywhere in infinite space from the room of a nutshell. Images of the sanctuary locations whirl backwards with music box notes jangling in reverse, and Ness wakes up to his friend's relief and their questions, which are answered by teleporting straight from there to Saturn Valley. The soundstone he used to have is gone. Like the nightmare, like Magicant, it has served its purpose, and it becomes part of Ness's own. So Contra, say, Akira, the Doomsday anime film, or the Final Fantasy's Medio, in Earthbound, we assert the saving power of the psyche and of psychic powers. Pokey and the Mani Mani statue, flanked by the classical pagan columns and devil horns, and the flying man and buzz buzz topped by crosses buried in Ness's mind, and the voice heard saying Saturn Valley, which is his own, and his turning around to face the player and the real world, as the earth fills him with his own as yet unrealized power. This is all a kind of Ariadne clue to go to Saturn Valley. It could be pieced together from hints so small as to be subliminal, from the mentions by Apple Kid and Dr. Andonuts, and that Mr. Saturn text when you first knocked on one of the doors in the house in Happy Happy Village when the Mani Mani statue first began violently to deceive. Ultimately, though, the inner voice that he hears must be that of Ness's heart, which knows things he isn't aware of previously, and has its reasons for not speaking up until now. So, to recap this maybe not very clear, but anyhow very strange dream, through walking in the garden of Ness's own unconscious creation, needing everything from faint memories, small voices, to resurrected leviathans in the sea. We came face to face in Eden with what we might call sin, error, untruth, separation from reality, ultimate reality which we might call God. And 
the need of grace to return to the real world. Ness is not alone in defeating his nightmare. His own voice, and the player, and the game, and the earth, and three friends watch over him. Many more, as we'll see at the end, are pulling for them. The earth has lent its power to him more than musically. Destiny has foretold his victory. This all starts to sound rather grandiose. I'm not sure how far to take it, but this interpretation opens a way to get apocalyptic here at the end of the game, and Fry would be proud. We are saving the world, after all. Take care. Until next time.